we have been going through the book of Luke to see who Jesus really is and to see who's really in the kingdom or not. And so far in the first 10 chapters, we've seen a shocking and recurring theme that the people who are getting into his kingdom are not the ones we would think because it's not based on how we would do it. In fact, you're going to see today that this well-known parable of the Good Samaritan is not really a call to social justice and compassion in our world. That's how so many people teach it. It's not really about a call to social justice and compassion in our world. This is still Jesus doing everything he can to kick the props out from underneath our good works mentality that's based on an assessment of ourselves and what we think we can do that's way too high. Why would he do that? He's doing that so that then he can offer the free gift of salvation that's based on grace through faith in him plus nothing. But until you think you can do nothing yourself, you're not very interested in this free gift of salvation. It's offensive. It's offensive. Oh, you can certainly draw a principle of social justice and compassion from this parable, but it's not the main point of what Jesus is trying to do right here. He tells this parable. Remember, I tell you all the time, when Jesus tells a parable, it is not a warm, comforting bedtime story with Uncle Jesus. Snug you down and tell me a story, Uncle Jesus, that settled. Parables were meant to be unsettling, disturbing. Every time he told a parable, you track through the Gospels. When he tells a parable, it's because he is discerning, oh, people in the crowd are so not thinking what they should be thinking. It's parable time to shock us and rock us out of our conventional human way of thinking that so often just keeps coming back in some form or fashion to I can earn my way into the kingdom by how I live so right and I love so well. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Go to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 beginning in verse 25. Luke chapter 10 verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, don't be confused. This is not lawyer in the way that we use the term today. This was an expert in the Old Testament law. So you could think more in terms of seminary professor. This guy knew his Bible backwards and forwards. He knew what the Old Testament said. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied. Now it's parable time because he realizes the guy's playing games. You, you can't come to Jesus and try to test him, trap him, trick him without him knowing. He's like, this guy is playing games with me. This guy is jousting with me. It's parable time. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. It is a parable, you guys, but it is a parable based on truth. Everyone in the crowd would have understood that journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was one of the most treacherous. It was so violent and so much crime happened on that path. It was called the way of blood. They called it the way of blood because the altitude was such that there was so much of a drop and it's mountainous and it's craggy and there's all these hairpin turns. There were all kinds of places to hide and harm people and rob people. 
So they're tracking with Jesus here. This makes perfect sense. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. Oh, look at me a minute. Because it's not, it's not affecting you the way it did them. When they heard that word, you guys, the crowd probably gasped and recoiled. The Jews hated the Samaritans intensely. There was so much animosity between these two groups. Because where the Samaritans came from is when Babylon took the northern kingdom captive and drugged them off the best, the richest, the smartest To Babylon, they left the poorest Jews in the land and then they sent some of their own Babylonians there to mix and marry with them. So the Jews considered... And then then the Samaritans went and built their own temple and their own place of worship instead of going to Jerusalem. In their mind, these are rebels and half-breeds. We're going to see later in Luke, if you wanted to insult someone, they could think of nothing worse than calling you a Samaritan. We're going to get to a place where the religious leaders say to Jesus, is this not why we say you are a Samaritan? They know he was not a Samaritan. He's born in Nazareth. Is this not why we say you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Worst thing we think of saying to you, you're demon-possessed and you're a Samaritan. And here he puts this in the story, but a Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, that's two two days worth of wages, and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Oh, what can we learn from this interaction between Jesus and a Bible expert, a seminary professor that thinks they know their Bible and know the way already? Well, number one, you might think love is the way. And if you do, you're not the first to think it. People have been writing about this, singing about this. You don't even have to be a Christian. You're created in the image of God to have a sense of the power of love. This is not just some emotion. The power of real love. And so this guy recognizes it also and captures it in one statement where what he's doing is he grabs Deuteronomy 6 and he grabs Leviticus 19 and he brings them together in one statement there in verse 27. He says, look at verse 27. He answered Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6. And your neighbor is yourself. That's Leviticus 19. That one verse, verse 27, captures an all out vertical love for God. That begins to spill out horizontally in love towards other people around you. All out vertical love for God that doesn't just stay there between you and God. It begins to spill out and bend out horizontally towards other people around you. And Jesus doesn't say he got it wrong. Look at verse 28. What he says. You have answered correctly. You've answered correctly. That statement, those two verses capture all of what God has commanded us in the Old Testament. If you were to obey those two things, you'd be obeying all the commands. And so if the answer is correct, what's the problem? What's the problem? Why the need for a parable here? Well, the problem is the man, as he quotes this, is not undone by it. The man's not undone by what he just said and doesn't see how his life falls woefully short of measuring up to this great summary of all of God's commands. And it's the same problem we have today. 
Because when people do think about love, and even when they think about some of the things that the Bible says about love, they just see it as some kind of lofty sentiment, some kind of lofty sentiment to shoot for. And something that might inspire us to do a little better and be a little nicer and treat each other better. Like when the Beatles sang, all you need is love, 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 love. It's true. Oh, my goodness. It's true that real love, you guys, would rock this world, would absolutely change this world. So what's the problem? The problem is we can't do it on our own. Not for long. The world keeps thinking if we just sing about this enough, write about this enough, philosophize about this enough, and remind everybody, love each other, we'll turn this whole thing around. We can't do it. Not for long. We'll get excited. We'll head, but it doesn't last. And do I need to remind you in the last 18 months? We're much better at hating than loving. It's, like, it's almost like the world said, oh, This is what I've been wanting to do forever. And the dam has been released. And I don't know that it's ever coming back. Oh, it's okay to hate. I've always wanted to hate. Here we go. Let me get in my hate seat. How many people can I hate? You guys, I hope this doesn't offend you because it's so biblical. Our default setting is hate, not love. We're quick to hate, slow to love. And people even on our love list, oh, they get dropped quickly and easily. Oh, you think that? You voted for them? You, you, oh, you're gone. You're over here now. Hey, I hate you. I used to like you, but I heard you say something I don't agree with. Hate you. Oh, the hate list just grows while the love list is so small and it doesn't take much to get someone bumped. We're much better at hating than loving. Here's a bonus verse. Titus 3.3. 3. You don't have to go there, but write it down. Titus 3.3. 3. Listen to what Paul, writing to Titus, says about our natural condition. So he's reminding Titus of what we're like before we come to faith in Christ. Here's what he says in Titus 3.3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. Does that not capture today? I'm on the internet passing my days in malice and envy. Just, oh my word. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Verse 4. But when... But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us, but according to his own mercy. Our default setting from birth is hate, not love. So you can sing about it all you want. Problem? We can't do it on our own. And we can't do it for long. And so it's important to keep in mind, I tell you this all the time, when you really want to understand a passage and interpret it rightly and get what God wanted you to get from it, very often it's helpful to back it up. What just happened right before this passage? Read the context. What was happening prior to this? And sometimes stretch it out and keep reading. You stopped reading too soon. If you really want to understand the parable of the Good Samaritan and what the point is he's really trying to make, it's good to have the immediate context and remember What just happened before this lawyer stood up and tried to put him to the test? If you were here with me last week or listening online, just last week, just four verses prior, Jesus began to emote and rejoice. Not a little bit of happiness, but I said it. It's the most intense Greek word they had for joy. He began to erupt with a public praise and prayer in front of his disciples over something. Look at it again in verse 21. Verse 21 of Luke chapter 10. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, Oh, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Why was he saying that? Because 
the disciples had just come back all jazzed by the power they had. And he said, whoa, 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 don't ever let that be your main thing. Your main joy should always be that your names, your names are written in heaven. Salvation, salvation. And as he talked about that, he got so excited and began to rejoice in the way the Father has revealed salvation by grace. The simple truth of salvation. And he actually says he hides it from people who think they're so wise and think they know. And he reveals it to people who simply come with childlike, humble faith. And so today it's no accident, you guys, that this passage Luke chooses because Luke does not keep things in in, in sequential order. He picks and chooses stories how he's going to. He chooses this incident to put it right here in his account. And I believe it's no accident. Luke, in a sense, is saying, let me show you what Jesus was just talking about. Let this man be exhibit A of someone who thinks they're so wise and smart already. So this passage is not about social justice and compassion. It's still about the most important question of all. Who does God save? And how does he save them? Who does God save and how does he save them? Luke is holding up this religious Bible law expert as an example of people who are wise in their own understanding. Because this man, I hope you realize, is not even asking a sincere question. He's trying to put Jesus to the test. I don't know if you've got any friends like that, co-workers like that, family members like that. That's what people who think they are so smart love to do. They're not really having a conversation with you. You ever have that feeling with someone? No conversation is going on here. They like to joust and debate and showcase their own wit and intelligence. But they're not really seeking truth because they think they already know, already have it. Verse verse 25 says, he stood up. To put Jesus to the test. In other words, think about it. We're in Luke 10 now. We are like a year and a half into Jesus' three-year ministry. Think of all the people who have already come to Christ. And they came seeking. They came hungry. They came desperate. They came looking for mercy and grace. And they received it. Unlike so many others who've already come to Jesus and were truly seeking him, this man is more interested in debating him and critiquing him than receiving anything from him. And so listen to me. Jesus is the greatest lover and the biggest giver. But here's what you need to understand. How you come to him determines what you'll receive from him. The heart you bring, the heart you bring, the heart you bring. Is it childlike, humble, hungry, seeking? Or is it, I'm coming, already knowing what I know, thinking what I think, believing airtight logic of what makes sense to me, and what you say next better match it. And I'm here to pick it apart. What about you? I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening online. But, oh, be careful how you're listening. We're going to see over and over how Jesus says, it matters how you hear. Oh, you need to have ears to hear. What he means is you really want to know. You haven't already decided. Do you have ears to hear? Are you open to something that might not be what you would have thought as a human being? Are you seeking truth and looking for real life? Or do you think you already know the way? And that leads to my second point. You might think you're already living the right way. I'm already living the right way. And if you do, you're not the first to think that because that's what's going on with this man right here. And that's why Jesus, here's what Jesus does with this guy. That's why Jesus commends him and offends him in the same statement. There is both. You might not see it immediately in the English translation, but in verse 28, there is a commendation and a condemnation, both, in verse 28. 
Jesus says, let me talk to you about the commendation first. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. You got it right. You got it right. And that word correctly there in the Greek is the Greek word orthos, from which we get our English word orthodox. He's saying, you got it right. You, you just spoke correct, orthodox, biblical doctrine about the love that God requires of us, that God demands. This is his standard. Love God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. And then love your neighbor. What kind of love? The way you love yourself, which is a bunch. You, I've been watching you, Jesus says, you really love you. You take care of you. You protect and promote you. And I want you to love neighbors like that. Ooh, he gave the right answer. The problem is he does not see how his life falls short of this. And here's what you don't see in the English. Right there when he says you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. And by the way, that word live is again that Greek word zoe that we had a few weeks ago. Not you'll live, you'll keep breathing in and out and your heart will beat biologically. You will truly live. You will come fully alive. You will be spiritually alive. You'll be all that God meant human beings to be in relationship with him. Do this and you will live. But what Jesus does that he does here. Jesus put that verb do in the present active imperative tense. In other words, it indicates do this and keep doing this. And don't ever stop doing this. And do this continually and do this without exception, not just occasionally and sporadically and not just with people that you find easy to love. Jesus is trying to remind this guy and show him the love God requires is a perfect love that has no limitations and no categories As to who's in or out. Who will get my love and who doesn't. And no place to hit pause and say I've loved enough. I'm afraid I'm not getting enough back. I'm going to wait and see if I get loved. That's how we operate with love. He's like nope. Present. Active. Indicative. And and here's what's really shameful. The guy really skips all together. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And just kind of acts like that's a given. I got that. Because notice his question is related to. The horizontal love. He should have said, oh my goodness, you mean love God like that? Hey, listen to it again. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. Is there any day that you've even done that for 10 minutes, my friend? Give me the right answer. The love that God requires is a perfect love with no limitations, no categories, no qualifiers, and no end. And so Jesus is saying, you got the right answer, but a wrong assessment of your own ability to do it. Yes, love is the answer, but you and every other human being are the problem. Because in your sinful, natural condition, the way you're born, you cannot love God and other people the way God calls us to. And if you're thinking, Brad, do you think this man really understood that he was being commended and offended at the same time? Oh, I do. Absolutely. And I think it because of what he tries to do next. What he tries to do next shows that he heard Jesus perfectly. Oh, he gets it. He's getting uncomfortable and perhaps he's being a little embarrassed in front of the crowd now because Jesus is getting the better of him. He's trying to save face and look better. He understood what Jesus was saying because look what he tries to do in verse 29 where he tries to limit and qualify who his neighbor is, right? But he, look at verse 29, because verse 29, you guys, is the key to this whole passage. Verse 29, the Holy Spirit inspiring Luke tells us what's going on in this man's heart. Not just what he says, but why. 
What kind of heart did he bring? What is going on in his heart? Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself. That word means to feel like I'm okay, to meet the standard, to validate. I'm good enough. I'm there. Yes. Desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? What is he doing? He's playing word games, you guys. And I don't think I need to go back in history and and show you even famous people, presidents, that have decided to play word games. When we get backed into a corner and the heat is really on and the floodlight is on your life and you're beginning to look bad, one of our favorite things to do is pretend we don't know what words mean. And to play a little word game. He's playing word games, which is, one, which is one of the things we love to do if we want to hold on to a higher assessment of ourselves than we should have. Listen, if you live long enough, you keep living, you live long enough, you will figure out that one of the best ways to feel, we want to feel good about ourselves. Oh man, I want to feel good about me. One of the best ways to feel better about yourself is to change the standard. One of the best ways to change the standard is to mess with the definition of words surrounding that standard. We're in a day where that is happening on steroids. On steroids, words used to have meaning. And now it's like, no, it means whatever I want it to mean. And I change the meaning of it so that it changes how I can feel about myself. What is really going on, you guys, is we live in a culture of redefining words as well as rewriting history. But here's what I want you to know is behind all that. What's behind that is the obsession that we have with promoting and protecting almighty self. 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 I don't ever want to feel guilty. We live in a day where you should never feel guilty. You should never have a sense of falling short or shame. Ever. I want to feel good about myself. Always. And to do that, I have to be allowed to to define words and change standards. I want to feel good about myself. The obsession with self. In other words, this man understood, you guys, there was no hope of measuring up to the standard of loving God and others continually that Jesus just said, yeah, you're right. Now do that and you'll live. And so he tries to change the standard and make it more manageable. Could we just limit who my neighbor is? I think there's some people, you know, I got a friend group that I think I can almost love them all the time. Let's just limit it to that. I got a handful of people I really, 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 really like already. Could those just be my neighbors? He's trying to make it more manageable. He's looking for a loophole. And that's why Jesus comes back with a knockout, good Samaritan, parable punch. That was not designed to put him on a path of do good, feed the hungry, turn this world around with a compassion ministry. It was designed to expose his prideful, selfish, sinful self-assessment by making the Samaritan the hero, 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 and his friend group are the bad guys. You realize this guy hangs out with priests. This guy hangs out with Levites. Jesus just made his entire friend group. The bad guys and the one that they think is heinous, the hero. Not to say, now, begin to live this formula of do good mercy and you'll get there. But to just shock him into thinking, what in the world are you talking about? Surely not. Listen to me. Real love. I hope you realize. Real love. Yes, love. Love would be all we need if everybody was really loving in a biblical. Biblical love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling, you guys. Biblical love is giving to the needs of another, expecting how much in return? Say it louder. Oh, that's fun. I wake up every day wanting to do that. Not. Right? We always think, but what, what if I don't get enough? What if I'm the loser? What if, what if, what if, what if? Yes. That's our hard default wiring. 
Real love can't even begin until you come face to face with just how bankrupt your own love is. We think we're great lovers. We're great lovers of ourselves. I mean, when I was single, I was like, oh, man, I love people. I love God. and I love singing in the woods with my guitar for hours. Look at me. I'm so godly. But I had nobody bothering me. I sang when I wanted. I played tennis when I wanted. I read books when I wanted. And then I got married. And I was like, I never used to be this way until she was in my life. She must be the problem. You're making me so. And, and that was the first two, three years of our marriage. Really bad while I continued to think, what is wrong with you? Until finally God shattered me to realize this has been the real Brad Bigney all, all along. It, it was not fun. I didn't want to see myself in a way I'd never seen myself. I'm like, I'm really selfish. I like wide margins in my life. I like my schedule not being messed with. I like reading books in silence where no one talks to me while I do it. I like all kinds of things that aren't happening now. I'm not loving at all. I'm like, oh, God, help me love. And I thought I was doing better. And then a baby popped out. I'm like, oh, my word, this is hard. Oh, where's me time? Me time. Ain't no. And we had another one. And then we did it again. And then we had another one. And we had another one. It's like, oh, I have no love. I'm bankrupt. Send these people away. Right? It's like, nothing made me this all exposed the truth of how bankrupt I am. And it's not just me. Laugh all you want. It's you. It's you too. Just pick a roommate that drives you crazy and find out. Stop picking people you like. Even like we used to laugh. Even even on campus, I remember thinking people would be best friends, best friends, best friends. And they'd say, let's room together next semester. End of friendship. I watch more friendships end once they live together. What's going on? Now I know you like I didn't know you. Just Just be friends from a distance. Best kind of friend. It's like, we are not good at loving. We're really good at getting ticked off, at being upset, at wanting what we want. And so that leads to my final point, you guys. Number three, Jesus loves us enough to expose what's really going on in your hearts. Look at me. Jesus actually loves this guy. Do you realize that? He loves him dearly. Jesus came into this world To save people just like this. He loves him. He doesn't hate him. He's not trying to embarrass him. He's not not rubbing his nose in it. He loves him. But here's what Jesus recognizes about him and all of us. Until you come to the end of yourself and actually reach a point of despair over you and what you think you can do, you will never be hungry for the gospel and say, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He loves him enough to try to push him to a point of despair so that then he would say, oh, if it's not me trying to do this, what is it? Here you go. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. But you guys, that, that process of reaching that point of desperation is quite painful and self Digs in its heels. Self, resist, 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 resist. That's what's going on in this parable. Because if you think about it, Jesus doesn't really answer his question. Instead, Jesus turns everything around. The man is saying, and who is my neighbor? So, so that he'll have limited categories of who he has to love. Jesus doesn't answer who his neighbor is because he knows the answer. It's everybody. Every single person is who your neighbor is. Instead, Jesus showcases and clarifies the kind of loving, sacrificial neighbor we're called to be. He says, I'm not going to tell you who you have to love. I'm going to tell you how you need to love. He turned the whole thing around. Because lack of information is not this guy's biggest problem. It's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is a lack of real love. 
that can only be changed by a new heart that can only be found in our Savior Jesus who first loved us. And even then, I wish I could say to you, oh, we just need more people to come to faith in Christ because then they will automatically be great lovers. I wish. One of the things that broke my heart over the last 18 months is Christians also showcasing hate. But here's the deal. When you come to faith in Christ, you now have the potential to truly love everybody. In fact, when it matters the most, Jesus, we already had it in Luke 6. Love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Pray for those that spitefully use you. You guys, it's not like we should say, I wish Jesus had given us some information for times like these. He did. I wish his people would do what he said. Instead of taking their cues from online bloggers, Jesus told us what to do. And he's given you what you need. You do not have to hate. You do not have to rage. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Spirit of the resurrected Jesus. What's the first, first characteristic? Fruit of the Spirit is. Say it again. Say it again. If it's not coming out of you, there's not enough of Jesus. You can still walk in the flesh. Go to Galatians 5. The works of the flesh. And he lists it and it's pretty ugly. But you have the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. Love. Joy, peace, patience. Jesus is not giving us in this parable a formula for how to love better. He's trying to expose us, our hearts, and show us just how shallow and superficial our own love really is. So that we'll cry out to him for mercy and grace. But if you're thinking, Brad, I don't see a word of grace anywhere in this parable. Then let me tell you what's going on. Because it's still going on with some of you listening today. Jesus knows that this man has to first reach a point of utter despair over himself before the gospel will even sound like good news to him. This parable of the Good Samaritan is actually really bad news for us. Because the love God requires is a love we could never, ever come up with on our own. And so as I close, I try to do this on a regular basis because it chafes me that when the world does choose to mention God at all, acknowledge religion and God, they act like you choose your flavor. All paths just lead to God. If you're into religion, pick one. That is so not true. I want you to see again from our passage today. That this message is radically different. This message is radically different than every other religion. Every other religion in some form or fashion, you think about it, still says, here are the rules, here's the list, here's the law. Now you go. You work hard, you stay after it long enough that you can justify yourself and start to think I'm checking the right boxes. I'm keeping the list. I'm following the rules. I think I'm there. I'm better than other people. All the other religious leaders will say, I'll point the way and I'll give you the right list, but you still have to do it. You still have to do it. Jesus and Christianity flies in the face of all that. As Jesus says, I didn't come into this world To show you how to justify yourself. I came into this world to be your all-sufficient once and for all justifier. And to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, and every other religious leader all tell you how you can live the right kind of life. Whereas Jesus says... I, I am the only one who lived a perfect life for you in your place. I'm the only one who ever loved God. I have loved the Father with all my heart and soul and strength and mind. And I loved my neighbors, all of them, 
Even my enemies, even those that despised me. I loved them sacrificially, even unto death. Death on a cross. And so now, humble yourselves. Come to the end of you and humble yourself. And come to me in childlike faith and put your trust in me and what I've done. Oh, listen to me. And when you do, here's what Christianity is all about. That's so, so mind-blowing. When you do, my perfect record of righteousness becomes yours and you will be justified in the sight of a holy, holy, holy God based on me and not you. And that is really good news because I do not change. I do not change. I do not change. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 3. And let me show you what this looks like. Let me show you what this looks like to be justified by God through his son, Jesus Christ, instead of you trying to justify yourself. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Look at me. One of the first things that has to happen before you're ever going to say, yes, save me, is for you to shut your mouth. And stop telling God and everyone else all that you're doing that's so great. The law was given not for you to say, oh, that's what I need to do. Great. I'm doing it. It was meant to stop your mouth. And for you to say, oh, my goodness, you're kidding. When you hear the summary of everything God, the law demands of us, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And love your neighbor, what kind of love? As yourself. That was designed to cause you to say, I, I'll, I'll never be able to do that. I can, perfect. That's the point. The law wasn't given for you to try to keep it and earn your way. It was given as a standard so that you'd realize, oh, I'm not as good as I thought. Because look what it says next. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. That passage is describing the same thing Jesus was trying to do with this expert. It backs us in a corner and you're just like, Oh my goodness, I'm that bad? Yeah, you're that bad. Oh my goodness, I need to stop trying to tell God all that I'm doing this? Yeah, you really should. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Sometimes people make the the silly statement, oh, people were saved by works in the Old Testament, now we're saved by grace. Please stop talking. No one has ever been saved apart from anything but grace. No one's ever been saved by works. They, in faith, offered sacrifices that looked towards the Messiah coming. No one has ever been saved by works. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You say, well, then what's the law good for? Why did he give it to us? He's going to tell you next. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He gave us the law so that you say, oh my goodness. Oh, now I got something to compare myself to. Ah. You know, even like when you're building or doing something, you're, you're laying block and you're building a wall next to your driveway. If you just eyeball that thing, we always think, yeah, that's good to go. Snap a little chalk line. And you're like, oh dear me. I was only off by an eighth of an inch. An eighth of an inch here ends up being two feet there. This thing is a, is a hazard. You think it's okay until you have a Standard. We think we're okay because our favorite way to measure ourselves is by someone else, and we can always pick someone doing worse. Right? Perfect. I like you in my life because you make me feel better. You're such a loser. So I do want good friends and a few losers because then I can always know that I'm doing well and it's easy to love my friends. Perfect. Oh, no, no, no. You need a real standard. And he says, let me give it to you. Love God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and your neighbor like you do yourself. Oh, I'll never do that. Perfect. Because now you might be interested in what God has done for you. 
Verse 21 begins with a glorious word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. I believe it's talking about Jesus Christ that embodies the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. All the law and the prophets kept saying, he's coming. They witnessed, he's coming. One is coming who's going to do for us what we can't do. They bore witness to it, but they did not give you the solution. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All. For there is no distinction. Hallelujah. No distinction, black, white, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, grew up in a Christian home, didn't grow up in a Christian home. Hallelujah. No distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. How do you get justified? And are justified by his, say it, grace as a gift as a gift listen to receive a gift you guys your hands need to be empty if your hands are still full of all that you think you're doing you're probably never going to say oh yes give me this give me this as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood that's a big word but it's a really good word The word propitiation is a word in the Greek that literally means not just to atone and pay a price, but to actually do it so that wrath is turned back. God is a holy God, and it's right for him to be angry towards sin. When Jesus died, it turned back the wrath of God against sin. He drank the wrath dry. He took the cup of wrath on himself on the cross so that if you put your trust in Christ, you will never experience the wrath of God ever, ever a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. I hope you realize all through the centuries before Jesus had come. Yes, they were obeying God and offering a goat and a bull and a lamb and a dove and sweet smelling incense But God says, this never truly atoned for sin. It just was temporary, temporary. And they did it in faith, believing what's really coming, really coming, really coming. He passed over. He had passed over former sins. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be. Oh, here's a beautiful verse. So that God might be just and the justifier. Of the one who has faith. You realize when God saves you, it's not because he says, oh, never mind all that sin. Come on in anyway. He can't do that. He cannot compromise his character. He remains just. And he's the justifier. How? Because he actually provides the sacrifice of what he demands and he does it for us. He stays just and he's the justifier of those who not work hard enough To keep the law, those who have faith in Jesus. Now, when you really understand this, verse 27 kicks in. Then what becomes of our boasting? You just, when you really understand that salvation is by faith alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and that you're not smarter than anyone else. You won't look down on your lost friends and co-workers and family members. You won't say, what is wrong with you? Heaven? Hell? Duh. I choose heaven. You realize you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Lights out. If you came alive and thought this is what you needed to do and saw Jesus as beautiful and understood the gospel, God did that in you. And so you say, where is boasting? Oh, my goodness, there's no place for boasting. And so then regardless of what's going on in our culture, no matter how dark, no matter how broken, every day you wake up saying, oh, my goodness, every day that I'm in America, regardless of the chaos and not hell, is a really good day. 
Really, you just have gratitude and you have compassion towards others. Gratitude and compassion towards others. Gratitude and love and compassion. Gratitude and love. Not to earn your way, but because of what he's done. You just live differently. Your joy is placed somewhere else. Oh, listen to me. Until you've been crushed by the magnitude of love he requires. And say, oh my goodness, that's the standard? You'll never humble yourself to receive the incredible love he freely offers in his son. What do you have today? What are you doing today? Are you still living under the crushing load and delusion of all you think you can do? Or have you come to the end of yourself? Have you had that moment of despair where you see how bankrupt you are? Have you come to the end of yourself so that now you've tasted the freedom and celebration of what God has done in his son for you? Come to Christ today. If you're not a Christian, you don't know him, come to Christ in humble, childlike faith. And if you are a believer, oh, get reoriented and remember again how you became a believer and that he has us here for such a time as this. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the free offer of the gospel. But then thank you for loving us enough to expose us. It's, it's not fun but to expose us and bring us to a point of despair over ourselves so that we would cry out, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me, save me. God, use us to live with such gratitude and such love and such compassion that it stands out in this dark, hateful world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.